Welcome to Ransom Revelations with Mike and Steve, a place where theology and everyday life collide. The opinions expressed in Ransom Revelations with Mike and Steve are ours and ours alone. We're not seeking to make a documentary with incriminating evidence. We're just seeking to provide an avenue for us to express ourselves, tell our story, and help anybody who may be blessed by it. In doing so, we have changed some names and places for the sake of anonymity and to protect those who may not want their information given out. So I think my favorite part about the bumper is how I have a hard time saying anonymity. It's just my personal favorite. <laughs> you love that? That's just me. Well, what's going on, Mike? Hey, man, we're back uh, recording again. <laughs> Another, That's what's going on. The next episode, as Dr. Dre would say. Next episode. And today we're joined by special guest, pastor, and foodie extraordinaire, Lance Skifter. Foodie extraordinaire, because I eat a lot of it. Yeah, the, the, all three of us fit <laughs> That's in that That's pretty much all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Everything from Jack in the Box tacos up to filet mignon, right? Hey, no discrimination. if you can combine the two, I'm a happy man. I have a wide-ranging palate. We're food woke. We don't discriminate. <laughs> so that's how we roll. So anyway, Lance is here to join us, because in the previous episode, we discussed some of the issues we ran into with Pastor Tom. That was the name we chose, right? Pastor Tom? Yeah, Pastor Tom. Trying to remember Pastor Tom. Um, <laughs> all those years I knew him was something else, now it's Pastor Tom. So digging in, we wanted to bring Lance in and have an opportunity to get his perspective on everything, fill in some of the gaps, and uh, help us along with where we lack, which is in plenty of ways. Yeah. I don't know, would you agree, Mike? Absolutely. And for context... Lance is the third member of the trio we mentioned. Yes. Uh, we didn't want to mention his name because we hadn't uh, had a chance to clear everything with him at that yeah. point. And now we obviously did because he's here. Yeah. So all three of us, I think, came to the Lord around the same time. Yeah. Uh, and we're at the original church where Pastor Tom came and uh, created all the fun time antics <laughs> that we discuss. So. Yeah. It was good times. So Lance, a little bit about yourself, where you grew up. Um, family, just what you want to share so yeah. the, the the audio audience can know a little bit more about you. Um, yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, be part of this project as much as, uh, as, much as possible. Um, I was uh, born and raised here in Southern California. We went to, uh, we started attending Church A. <laughs> that works. Um, I like that. Church A, yes. <laughs> we started attending Church A uh, when I was about eight and a half years old. And um, so that was, I'd been there a long time. But when I was 14, we moved to Minnesota. And so then uh, I came back to Southern California. I was around 22, 23, something like that. And I came back to Southern California and eventually wound up back at Church A. And you owned a restaurant for a while, didn't you? I owned you? a restaurant in Minnesota. Yeah, I worked at restaurants for most of my life. And um, Exciting stuff. So Lance, um, the relationship that we began at Church A, at least for me, because I came in late in the game, was short, but obviously long-lasting. Uh, apparently, because you're here and we're talking to each other <laughs> and giggling. I'm here so. for Mike. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm here for Mike, too. It's actually an intervention, Mike. So. Oh, boy. <laughs> Is that why there's people in the hallway? Yeah, we, the, we don't want to tell you. We pretended it was a bar mitzvah for you finally, but it's, it's long really overdue. 
It's really an intervention. I'm still not really mature enough for a bar mitzvah, though. <laughs> this is this is true. That goes for all of us. So as we dig in, we're going to focus this time on a wolf in shepherd's clothing. That's the main thrust of where we want to go. And how do they get in? What does that look like? How does it affect the church? Um, at least from our perspectives. Me coming in late to the game, you were there, I think, second longest as far as when Pastor Tom was there. Lance, you were there the longest with Pastor Tom, correct? And I believe you were also... We were there the same amount of time with Pastor Tom. Okay. Um, but I had gone to that church a More. lot longer than than that time. But we were both going there when that church called Pastor Tom. Okay. And at that time, if I remember correctly, weren't you living with one of the elders of the yeah. church? So the, the head, the head elder, the so chair elder, the, chair, so you probably, the chairman of the board. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're going to have, and just to preface this, you're going to have insights that I don't have, and Steve yeah. don't doesn't have, just because of your proximity to yeah. that elder and the whole process. So yeah. this yeah. is going to be very enlightening. There, we probably have different perspectives on things, and Absolutely. that's great. So yeah. So with the context of Church A, and the first point we kind of want to work through is getting desperate for a pastor, how do they get in, these wolves in shepherd's clothing? Mm -hmm. um, we, we see examples of men getting into these churches, and every story is a little different. There's always nuance, there's always different perspectives and different ways these occur. But at Church A, what were some of the things that you guys saw? Because I came after he was already established, if you want to call it that. How did, how did he get in? What did that look like? What was the church's mood? What were they doing um, in preparation for him? Why did they need a new head pastor? What was some of the context there? So we had a, a pastor who was there for quite a long time. I think it was like 13 years. Okay. And he uh, contracted Parkinson's disease and kind of became unable to fulfill the duties on a weekly basis of preaching and even the daily basis of counseling and things like that. And so the church began the process of looking for and calling um, a new pastor. And approximately and, how long before PT came in? Uh, it, would, it was a three, like a three-year process. Okay. I was not there for all of that three years. Um, but we were there probably three, four months before yeah, I was there a few months before they called Pastor Tom. Yeah, for sure. And and we started coming around the same time. Yeah, I mean, it was really clear. I don't remember if I was there a week or two before you, or you were there a week or two before me. But it was it was pretty close. Yeah, in the time. But I that was me coming back. I had grown up in that church. Yeah. So they began the process of looking for a new pastor, and obviously they took their time, determined to find the right guy. Um, and I think determined to find someone young enough that could take them through many years of pastoral shepherding. So somebody with longevity, somebody who matched their branding or however you want to phrase it, their yeah, denominational their, bent. Their denominational bent, their theology, their uh, ecclesiology, and uh, all of that. The, the pastor that I actually started attending the church when I started attending the church, it was the pastor before the 13-year guy. Okay. <laughs> and he was only there five years. That was his, found out later, that was his MO. He, he went to a church for five years. He moved every five years to, a different, to mm. a different church. Felt like he had all he could say in five years. Okay. And then moved on. 
And so I think they really wanted someone who was going to give them, you know, the longer um, tenure of pastor there. And so they began looking for the right guy. And then they took their time doing it. So taking their time, and interrupt if you need to, Mike, but is there some advantages you see to a church taking that long? Uh, what what would you, let me phrase it this way, what are the advantages to waiting three years or searching for three years, but what are also the disadvantages, and for both of you all? Yeah, I think I think not rushing into hiring someone is a good, a good thing, yeah. right? When you, especially somebody you've never met before, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't know how long... Uh, you don't know that, you know, I can pull the wool over somebody's eyes for two or three months even yeah. just to, we all can, but their character begins to reveal themselves, reveal itself over time. And, uh, I think, I think in general, the hiring process in churches is too short, uh, but there's no other way to do it. People want to start getting paid. <laughs> like, you know, there's yeah. really no other, there's no other way to do it. Um, it's very difficult. And so when it's your first ministry job and you don't have any references to to call and check, um, it can be very difficult. And was that some of what happened with Pastor Tom? There weren't a lot of references? Or what was some of the... So we had a longer time frame. They ended up settling on Pastor Tom, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I would at, say they, went, they ended up settling for Pastor Tom. Okay. So they settled for him. And do you think the long time frame played into that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And in my perception, it, it felt like the church was ready to be done searching. Yeah. Um, I think fair. they were worn out of, of auditioning people, and they just wanted to get it done. And you guys may not and know And I answer. get that. I think I don't fault them yeah. for that at all. And you may not know the answer to this, but were there quite a few men that they had gone through before they got to PT? I mean, they, they had candidates all along the way. Um, I do not know any of the reasons why... Those candidates were not viable. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but they did have candidates. There were other men. So a little bit of it was being done with the process. Um, the advantage to that then is you find a guy who meets what you need. Rest in the Lord's providence in that. But then you also can get tired of the process in doing so. So what other factors led to Pastor Tom getting in? We see a church that had been on the hunt. They had some qualifications, a guy that could take him to length, met certain theological brandings or styles or um, convictions. How'd the ecclesiology of the church fit into that? Um, the culture of the church, any of those factor into why they brought this man in? One thing I remember Pastor Tom doing is resting heavily on his connection to John MacArthur. Um, And I remember him talking about the fact that he was mentored by him, and he kind of had this get-it-while-it's-hot sort of presentation of, like, if you guys don't take me, the next church will, so, like, I'm I'm one of John's, like, top protégés, so if you want to, you know, do this, like... I'm I'm offering this and like you better jump on it. I remember that was that being part of his attitude. It wasn't upfront, it wasn't that arrogant, but it was definitely part something I remember him bringing that I think created a false sense of urgency to try to bring him on and I think that only appealed to certain guys on the board probably and others 
probably perceived it as being, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> Lance, your, your um, take? Yeah, and I think, you know, to defend a little bit, to defend Pastor Tom in that regard, I think that's kind of what you do when you're on a hiring when you're on the hiring tour, right? Yeah. When you're candidating and you're doing these things, you kind of want to convince uh, the church that you're candidating at that you're the right fit for them. And, uh, you know, there's a reason that uh, we reached out to that brand of, you know, of seminary graduate. We reached out both to uh, Talbot and to Masters to bring guys before us that would be candidates for that. And just to be clear, this is in no way an indictment of Masters or John MacArthur. No, not just at to be all. clear, this this is like just I said. There's a reason with this guy. There's a reason we reached out to them. Yeah, we respected right. them, and they, you know, um, and uh, had had very good um, results with guests that had come from there and different things like that. And so we were excited about that prospect. In fact, we had uh, at least. One, I think two at the time, young men who were going to Master's Seminary at the time that Pastor Tom was called. We also had one going to Talbot at the time that Pastor Tom was called. So our church had relationships with both seminaries. But one of the key factors in getting Pastor Tom in the door was uh, the church polity and the governing document. The infamous government The infamous document. government governing <laughs> document that has been uh, banned to hell. <laughs> by Pastor Tom by himself. By Pastor Tom himself. The Pastor Tom from uh, the pulpit. Yeah. On a, on a day that we will talk about in a different... Yes, which we <laughs> alternatively, some refer to as Black Sunday, some call Sunday Bloody Sunday. Yes. Um, all valid monikers. All yes. valid, definitely valid monikers. Um, but this... Constitution was written in uh, response to a church split that had happened many years prior. We're probably talking 25 years prior to Pastor Tom coming, which would be, what, 40 years now? 40 years ago at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, that church constitution, uh, the church, church A was born out of a church split from another church. And the constitution was written in response to that church split. Side note, also known as a Baptist church plant. Just going to leave that Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's how Baptists plant churches. Very true. <laughs> so the Constitution had a clause in it that there had to be six men on the board. Now, they did not use the word elder at the time. They had what were called deacons and trustees. Um, but that had to be, there had to be at least six deacons on the board in order to do business legally. So that meant, because that was on, that's what was on file with the state. So that meant in order to pay salaries, in order to hire, in order to fire, in order to pay bills, in order to make any financial decisions, there had to be six men on the board. And six quote-unquote qualified men. Yeah, so then they would use, while they didn't call them elders, they used... The qualifications of elders listed uh, in the scriptures in Timothy and Titus, and they used those qualifications to determine who those men would be. And that's great if you have a church of three to five hundred 
you can probably find, you should be able to find six qualified men. But as your yep. numbers begin dwindling, we have difficulty finding six qualified men in a church of 200. Yeah, yeah and that's around where... Church A was at that point was in the what two hundred ballpark like probably one, around one fifty two hundred one fifty two hundred yeah. somewhere between one fifty and two twenty five I would say is is a fair is a fair estimation and it might sound shocking that I say it's hard to find six men at a, in a church that size that are elder qualified but the scriptures itself tells us that this is going to be a small group of men who are going to meet these requirements yeah. right. And so it shouldn't be surprising if, if it was every man met these requirements, then Paul wouldn't have needed to give requirements. Yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> right? So, exactly. So the fact that he gives requirements lets us know that there's going to be some who don't meet them. Right. Right? It's implicit for it's sure. It's implicit. And so uh, when you get a church of 150 or 200, that uh, it becomes very difficult to find six qualified men. And so what happened in the case of Church A was that they needed six men to do business. So there wound up being, you know, kind of look the other way kind of stuff. And so there wound up being just frankly unqualified men on the board yeah. as a time that Pastor Tom was called. Men who aren't necessarily ungodly. Not necessarily ungodly, not meet, unbelievers, not you know. Don't meet the high standard that Paul places. Correct, and that's that's a lot of that's a lot of people. It is. It really is. It's not it a, is not not a bad place, just not for that place of, exactly. of leader. Yeah, and so you had this. You had these unqualified men that outnumbered at that point outnumbered the qualified ones, and so things slipped through the cracks. When when you've already opened the door to letting unqualified men in the room, then you open yourself up for hiring an unqualified man to lead yep. those things. People tend to find leaders like themselves. Yeah. It's just a natural bend. You know, or possibly the lack of discernment to pick up on certain Nonsense. nuances that maybe someone who had a little more yeah. Discernment might pick up on because I would assume I would assume that uh, some of the men probably picked up on some things with Pastor Tom that were alarming or at least deserved further investigation and required some further um, follow up that maybe some of the the other guys weren't really in for. Lance, uh, what was your take on that? Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair a fair assessment. I know that the Qualified men had concerns. Uh, the men on the board who were qualified did have some concerns about Tom, uh, Pastor Tom, um, uh, but they were outnumbered, and so uh, he was able to get in there. Again, not, not necessarily to his... He didn't know that necessarily, right? There was like this perfect storm of unqualified men on the board and unqualified man coming to, mm. <laughs> yeah. to a, a church that's fatigued, a church that's fatigued. And, and even in the literal response, when you're tired, you don't have your best sense about you. Yeah. And that includes in the big relational places like that as well. And, and three years without a, a without a shepherd, that's hard. Um, leaves you spiritually malnourished. Yeah. I think is the best term for it Yeah, where you're just kind of, you're not as sharp on Doctrine and different things like that, as you would be, have you had consistent sort of shepherding in that regard for 
for the time. So spiritually malnourished, uh, desperate in yeah. in a certain way. That that word sounds weird, but like they were just tired of the process. Yeah, yeah maybe fatigue. <laughs> fatigued would be is more a great. Fair. Fatigue yeah, fatigued is more fair. Desperate in it, and just kind of wanting to get that filled and move on with life. Those all are big factors that can go into any major decision in anybody's life. When you have a communal environment like the church and a higher calling, it's where more caution takes over. You mentioned that some of the qualified uh, deacons or elders, functioning elders, had concerns. Do you know what any of those concerns were beforehand? It's uh, only been like 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was some documentation that he was unable to provide. Um, <laughs> that sounds familiar. For, Any, uh, and, and it wasn't. It wasn't even. I know that we will talk or have talked about the ordination thing, but uh, an actual diploma. Uh, he was unable to provide proof that he had graduated so with he, his master's degree. He made claims that he had. He made claims that he had a master's degree. The job description listed that as a requirement. And he claimed that he met those requirements, but was unable to provide the documentation. And again, uh, many of the men were happy to take him at his word rather than, you know, and he had a series of excuses. We just moved. I can't find, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. And so uh, many of the men were happy to take him at his word. Uh, that made some of the men uneasy. Just, man, I'd like to lay my eyes on that document, but I want to trust this guy. I don't know that anybody thought he was unqualified, but I think there were some, I know there were some men who had reservations. And during that time where Pastor Tom had come around, the interview process had begun. So there's a fatigue, there's a lack of discernment. Some, some men who aren't ungodly, but necessarily unqualified lacking some of the, the standards that maybe they should have had. Obviously, hindsight shows that. And these are general rules I would posit um, are in a lot of churches that make similar decisions. A perfect storm occurs. A lot of these factors probably cross over in other churches that bring wolves in as far as to shepherd the flock. With um, Church A, they pulled the trigger, obviously, mm -hmm. and they brought him on board. So what, what were things about him that Church A liked that you would say were benefits that they saw as benefits? What were the things that they felt he had that they wanted? Yeah. I know his preaching was con had a lot of conviction behind it. I think that appealed to me, I know, as a young believer. Uh, I felt like he was willing to take a stand for something, which I also appreciated, and that was actually quite different than the previous pastor. Uh, I remember I had gone to that church for a while in high school, and the other pastor was a great guy, the man who uh, contracted Parkinson's and was no longer pastoring. Um, but in, in order to keep peace, I think he often allowed multiple views to stand, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, I wouldn't fault him for that at all now. I think at that time of my walk, I felt like that was weak and, you know, foolish. So for me, that appealed to me at the time, and now it would probably repulse me. <laughs> yeah. But um, his ability to seemingly parse the scriptures well, and he also did some counseling, which got worse and worse with time, <laughs> but um, his personal interactions at first seemed 
humble. They seemed like he was really a godly man, and he was presenting himself in such a way that he came across as kind of the perfect candidate for the church in a lot of ways. Not fully. I mean, there were a couple little things, but overall, he presented himself in such a way that he seemed like a really good candidate. So we have a supposed conviction of the scriptures, a personality that I would say even to this day probably factors in, a likable guy in a lot of ways. Very charismatic. Charismatic. I would would agree with all of those assessments. I think there was a lot of... I think at the beginning, the only reservations that some of the board members had was the f- the inability to provide some documents. And that was the... the other than the that, other he, he seemed to check all the boxes. I mean, very charismatic, very likable guy, um, preached, with, like you said, preached with conviction. Um, and to be fair, not that you were unfair to the previous pastor, uh, he was a man full of grace in truth, um, he really was. He, he really, was a great guy. He was a great guy. He was. A, he was really a good, good shepherd, and um, and that's some of the things that you know. I was a young believer. You were a young believer. That's that hard line, like you know, this is the way it is, kind of thing. Um, that appealed to me. I think you know some of my background. Uh, coming out of addiction to alcohol and things like that, I desired that rigidness. Like I needed somebody to tell me what to do, you know? <laughs> and yeah, so for, I know exactly what you so mean. So for yeah. me, he was, he was the guy. He was like, that's, that's who I want to, to be under. Even if I didn't have a legacy in that church, like I hadn't been there since I was eight years old, I probably would have been very attracted to that style yeah. because of, of my past so we have somebody who's convictional on the exterior, somebody who seems to root himself in the scriptures, leads well, it seems. Not perfect, because no pastor is going to be, and everybody's going to have their foibles. Everybody will have their issues. So he comes in, hired on full-time, um, but not ordained. And that's not uncommon, where you have a pastor come in, and then ordination comes later. Um, step in, Lance. Um, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly that he said that he was ordained. Okay. But that the like service and the certificate hadn't been done yet, but that he had like gone through the the steps of ordination through the college. I know that they do have that. Like that's part of they the They do. They have an ordination prep class. An ordination prep class yeah. and he'd gone through all of that and he was approved for ordination according to because he passed his probably because testimony he passed the that class. he was approved for, for approved for ordination, and then uh, that just hadn't like they just hadn't made it quote unquote official yet, okay. and so that's what he how he checked that requirement box okay because that was also a requirement on the so they did require an, or, an ordained masters uh, man of the masters degree to come in yes um, so hindsight shows that there was no proof of graduation because well, hindsight has proven he wasn't correct. No proof of ordination. Um, because hindsight has proven that he wasn't. Wasn't, and still probably isn't. Although now in California, you can ordain your cat to marry you. So, it, you know. Yeah, yeah, you can buy one online. Last time I looked, it was $45. Yeah, so. Oh, the, that's how I got mine. Yeah. That's that's why my dog married me. Um, and to my wife. That's how it rolls here in Cali. So we have hindsight showing these issues. 
but obviously deceit was occurring from the get go. Yeah, from the get go. Without without knowing. Like yes. that's what deceit is, right? Like yeah. the people on the other side. <laughs> I think I think that's some of the reservation. I think the some of the men suspected that, that might be the case. Without proof. Without proof of that. And so they couldn't really act on it because they didn't have proof that he was lying to them. But the inability to come up with your documents. Um, yeah, that's a was problem. A, was a problem. So lack of discernment is an issue. Um, and then, and we all have those moments, not to to knock anybody in particular. Yeah. We've, we've Especially when you're fatigued. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Right. When you're tired, you don't have your best judgment. And when the, goes. the person who you're, you know, looking at is presenting themselves in a way that doesn't really set off alarms yet. Yeah. He Correct. played the role he needed to play up front to make it seem like he was really humble. So it his attitude didn't come out at that point mm-hmm. of his uh overbearing leadership. Uh model and his desire to like dominate everyone. Yeah. I, he started off very much in false, what I would call false humility, yeah. I think. Because he's straight up deceiver. Yeah. I mean, hands down, he's just a deceiver. But like you said, Lance, you don't know you're being deceived until after you're deceived. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Always yes, it is. is. Tends to yeah. be. That's what I hear. Yeah. That's what the proverbial they say. So he comes in, um, and Supposed ordination, but no paperwork. We'll, we'll phrase it that way. How long before? And I came shortly after his ordination service. That's what I'm just going to call it, though. Mm-hmm. That's really not what it was. How long before he was hired till that supposed ordination service, which was a mess? You know, hindsight shows it was a mess. The service ways. wasn't a mess. No, but, but all, all the administration <laughs> all the around it was. Background, yeah. everything in the yeah. in the behind, you know behind the scenes was a cluster. Yes. What, what we find out later had happened was he had set up John MacArthur to come down and install him. He told John, hey, I need you to do this installation. I'd like you to. Yeah, mm-hmm. if you can. So he set that up. He told John, you're installing me. He told the church, he's ordaining me. That's what I remember. So he told what the story that, or the way that I heard it mm-hmm. was that he told John, that the church was ordaining him, he told the church that he had already been ordained by masters and that John was just coming to do the, ser- the, the service, to preach the service, mm-hmm. and that's when everything would be made official. And so it was um, a deception of both sides mm-hmm. of that. So, so John MacArthur and the master's side was being deceived into thinking that church A was doing the ordination. And Church A was being deceived into thinking that Master's Seminary had already done the ordination. And so we brought together this service that was, I mean, it was amazing to have John MacArthur come in. Yeah, it was <laughs> a smaller preach. church. Yeah, it was a smaller church. It's not, and and I, I would offer that that's one thing that Pastor Tom did not deceive us about was his relationship with John MacArthur. He there d- was a relationship. There was a relationship there. John doesn't go around preaching every graduate's ordination service. So there was a relationship there yeah. that drew John to accept that invitation. Yeah. So it helped Pastor Tom legitimize himself in the eyes of everyone to have John come and do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Understandably, too. But my understanding also is that he printed out his own made up ordination certificate at the church. I don't know that it ever actually got printed out. Okay. 
but it he was, created one. He created in the church one office somewhere in the church computer. office somewhere on a computer. That's the story. I don't know that it ever got printed out because there were, you know, an ordination certificate has a series of signatures on it because it's, it's more than just one person that has to sign. Yeah, it's those, a governing the, body of some kind that does it. I didn't it's say not has to sign those things. Yeah. It typically signs those things. Yeah. It's more than mine has four, four signatures on it. If, um, if we could put a whoosh sound in to where we're skipping location and time, this is where that sound effect would go in. Whoosh. There we go. <laughs> So we're in we're in the future from these events, but the past from today. I remember, and you you may not have been at the church split church. You may have already left Pastor Tom's church after Pastor church, church, church yeah. B church church B. B. Okay, we're going with church B. <laughs> church B. I remember him telling me that he was going to go golfing with John MacArthur, and he showed me an ordination certificate that he had. I don't know if he printed okay. it out, if he bought it online, or what. And he made essentially the statement that, you know, the day that I was ordained by John, um, it was busy, you know, everybody wanted to talk to John, and he rushed out without signing it. So I'm getting together with him, go golfing. Can I just say, and I interrupt that story? Do it. The ludicrousness of that statement is the same idea as a pastor not signing a wedding Yes. Uh, marriage license at the wedding. And then you wait five years to get it signed. Because that's what you do as part of like what you have on your mind as what I need to do that day. Yeah. It's, part it's of on your, the it's, checklist. It's on the checklist. Yeah. So he made the statement that John just forgot. It was busy. People were hitting him up for signatures and shaking babies and kissing hands. The normal <laughs> stuff John does. Um, and politicians. And he was going to go golfing with him and have him sign it. I never saw it signed. I don't know if he went golfing with him. And I've heard that John will, I don't know how much now since he's in his 80s, but at the time, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, still would do things like that, where he'd get together with students he had gotten to know, mm-hmm. spend time with them, encourage them. Yes. That was part of his ministry as John MacArthur, regardless of what anybody may think of him, because there are varying opinions. But he was a man who loved his students and who loves the ministry. So we can whoosh back to the past. Whoosh. There we go. And the ordination day, quote-unquote ordination day, uh, the, the production value here is just Disney-esque, if, uh, I, we, if I may interject. We spare no expense here. Yeah, we, we, we... Rants and revelations. We're basically Pixar in the Christian world in the audio form. <laughs> That's right. So just so you guys... Bootleg Pixar. <laughs> yeah. Pixar. We're Pixar. That's <laughs> <laughs> how we roll. So we're the squire guitar <laughs> of the podcast world. <laughs> um, so we whoosh back over. Ordination day, quote unquote, comes. So he's told John they're doing it. They've told, he's told the church, John's just doing the message, but it's basically done. I wasn't there for that service. So what happened? John preaches evening service, if I recall correctly. Yeah. He comes, he preaches. Anybody lay hands on PT? Mm. I don't remember that. I don't remember that okay. being done. The service was not weird at all. I mean, it was... And John probably preached a good he message. He preached on. a great message. It was celebratory. Um, we were all very happy to be there. The conversations afterwards were very uh, encouraging and edifying. Um, I mean, it, it, it seemed like a typical 
ordination service. What you would expect. And having been ordained yourself, Lance, would you say it falls in line with some of the same flow of what you would expect? Absolutely. At ordination service? So yeah. it, it fit. Yeah, it fit. It fit well. It fit well. Except for, like, I don't have a vivid rem- memory of anybody coming up and laying hands on. And the reason for that is because he told one side... One the thing. other side was doing it, right? He told each side the other side was doing it. Or one and side so, had been done, so whatever. So if, if masters had done it, they would have already laid the, laid the hands on um, with, you know, with John. And he, so he, I don't know what he told John. Oh, that'll happen later? I don't know. I mean. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I got the impression that he told John that John was coming to install him. And that may have that may have been the case as well. And yeah. so it was supposed to be that. That's that it was my just an installation service, and right. that he told us it was his ordination. Right. Service. And that was my recollection. Whether that's accurate, that or not, probably I don't know, sounds but. more because, you know, it w- I think John would question why there wasn't a laying on of hands at an ordination service. So I think that that probably sounds more an installation accurate. service. Well, yeah, makes more sense. Which is ways. not uncommon either. That and technically was true. John was installing him there. That was actually there. the truth. Yeah, yeah that was <laughs> that the, one was actually. The, yeah, he actually told John the truth, but not. Yeah, Church A. Not Church A. Church A was under the um, belief yeah. that this was the finalization, which is probably who you need to be honest. I mean, yeah, the, the church you're going to work at, yeah. you probably don't want to lie to him about what's going on. But just the fact that John was there, I think, blinded people a bit. Yeah, uh, you, uh, you I think have, you used the term earlier, illegitimized. Pastor mm-hmm. Tom, yeah, and yeah. I think I think that's yeah, that's the the right phrasing is yeah. that it, we just went like okay, whatever reservations there might have been, John MacArthur agreeing to come do this, and us knowing full well that he doesn't agree to do this for every graduate, um, put some put some respect on Pastor Tom's name. Yeah, it absolutely right. did. So yeah. So there's very clearly um, a root of deception and an arrogance in Pastor Tom. I don't think we knew an arrogance then. No, no, I, I agree. We didn't know about it, but there, there obviously there was. Hindsight again. Hindsight mm-hmm. shows there was. Yeah. So, and I agree. It's part of the deception. The yeah. arrogance is hidden. The deception is hidden. That's how de- yeah. deception goes, as per discussed. Huge false humility. Yes. So we how- we, again, not uh, we didn't know that at the time, but I think early on we would have labeled him as a very humble. A very humble man. Agreed. And I came in shortly after the installation, um, ordination, whatever you want to call it, uh, service. I think we came about a month or less after that-ish, somewhere in there. And you see all these things we're discussing. I saw them. That's part of what attracted us was, one, the brand, um, two, the character, the, the the, the given character of the man and his family. Had a lovely family, lovely wife, lovely daughters. Seem to love the church, seem to disciple, doing studies, you know, wanting to see the church grow. A younger guy, what, 30s? Was he in his 30s at the time? I think so. Church seemed to be growing. I mean, we came. We were a younger family. I was in my late teens. I turned 19 there. I remember that. My had younger brother and sister, you know, so we, we started attending. You saw some fruit of the attraction that he brought, which was good. That's what you want. But there was very clearly false humility arrogance, and some of the things that to a degree was attractional to our brand, the, the master's brand, was also this uh, dogmatism of dying on every hill. How did that factor into how the church um, led towards the split and towards him leaving? What, what, what did that do to the congregation? I think that's a tactic 
that he used to try to prey on people through their convictions. Uh, ultimately, I think at first it came across as a confident pastor, someone who is willing to take a stand on doctrine um, and not waver, which seemed like a good thing. But at some point, a switch flipped. And I don't know exactly when it was, Lance, maybe you can speak to this um, better, but at some point, a switch flipped, and he went from this seemingly humble guy to a guy who was trying to grab as much power as he could as quickly as he could. Uh, And he used the pulpit as a weapon, and he used Scripture as a weapon. And as he weaponized Scripture, he weaponized people's convictions as well. And what I understand now, and there's multiple angles to take this from, the biblical angle, which is primary, is a false teacher will deceive people with Scripture. And they'll use their power wrongly, they'll misuse their authority, they will try to get people to become subject to them instead of Jesus. They want to be the ultimate authority in people's lives. On the psychology side of it, there's also a really interesting profile of what's called a grandiose narcissist. And if you read up on that, this guy fit that to a T. Which, by the way, grandiose narcissist, best cheesecake you'll ever have. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) This is a cheesecake? It should be. I'm just saying if it isn't, we got to make it. Sorry. The grandiose narcissist cheesecake. Yeah, they sell it at Cheesecake Factory. But I digress. So <laughs> enough of my That's nonsense. Good That's good Back to you. But if you look at how narcissists go about recruiting, subjugating people, it's the same as it, it, a false teacher in a lot of ways is the same as a grandiose narcissist. They're just two different sort of approaches to the same sort of personality type. And one of the things that these guys do is they use scripture in such a way as to create false obedience to them. They they want to make people subject to them as their personal little followers. So like a fiefdom. Yeah, you know, you know like they want them to be their little slaves, really. Which to boil it down is a cult tactic. cult tactic. You look at Mormonism, you look at Jehovah's Witnesses, and major cult to minor cult, and everything in between, you see that as a major factor. Yeah. Yeah, and he he started that process. I don't know how cognizant he was of what he was doing, uh, specifically, or if he just sort of couldn't help himself but be that way. Um, I mean, he was pretty slick, so he could have known exactly what he was doing, uh, but he started dying on every hill doctrinally, and he emphasized every single thing as if it was equally important to your salvation, to the gospel. And doctrine started to blur. You started to get this working back in of secondary doctrines into the gospel, and making, specifically, he, he went into the five points of Calvinism, and he started preaching on sovereignty, on depravity, on election. And he started pushing those issues to the point that he literally pushed them into the gospel. And where, hey, if you're not believing in this, you know, it's questionable. It made it feel like, you know, if you didn't believe it, like you might not really be saved. And uh, that really ruffled some feathers. Lance, did you want to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a fair assessment. I think that... Um he reverse engineered a lot of things like you were talking mm-hmm. about. We're bringing back into the, the pure gospel um, and, and setting uh, his interpretation of the scripture up 
as chief so that any disagreement with that would be labeled false teaching uh, when when he was the actual false teacher. teacher. Very clever. It's very clever, and I think Mm -hmm. it's common in that sort of thing. My opinion, 20 years later, uh, I think he knew what he was doing from the beginning. I can't, I don't know the guys, you know, like I can't read his mind, but I don't think there was a switch flipped. I think that was always the plan. I I would definitely agree with that. I think he just had to figure out when the right time was to pounce. When the time was to pounce. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think, I think the plan was always that. I think, I think that he preyed on a malnourished church in order to enhance his platform yeah um and his power i just think that it became and again for i know for you and i in particular uh that was very appealing kind of being told what to do was something that we needed in our lives at the time and so i had this really weird situation where i looked up to pastor tom and i really appreciated his preaching and the way that he was giving us the word. And I remember one Sunday (laughs) saying to you, like, man, when he gets done preaching, I just want to go rub my head on the sidewalk until it's bloody. (laughs) You know, I remember that, you know, (laughs) and and like being proud and being proud of that fact, like, like that was a good thing. Like that was a good thing that I wanted to go do that, you know, because I felt so unworthy of all of this stuff that I needed to go you know, Do in penance. my own mind, pay pen. He would never have, or. he, he did not offer that, right? Like he didn't say go pay penance, but like to me that felt like what I needed to do. Uh, and then I'd go home as I'm living with the chairman of the board and he and his wife would be talk. I would overhear conversations with he and his wife talking about, man, what a, what a disastrous sermon, what a potentially dangerous sermon that was today. And you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, you guys are and I highly, res- I highly, no, I highly respect both, both men. So you're trying to, and I'm like, I'm sitting in the middle, just going like, I have no idea what to play. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like I have no idea what to think. Yeah, and I was in a similar situation at, at home. I was living with my grandparents, and they weren't too impressed with Pastor Tom. And but the problem was, I thought I was so much smarter than everybody. And especially my grandparents, which is so sad in hindsight, and I regret this, but that's where I was at the time. And I felt like, well, their doctrine is so weak, you know, they don't really even understand the scriptures. So it was easier for me to dismiss them, which is sad, (laughs) really sad in hindsight. I wish I would have been more conflicted, but I was still in a very uncomfortable position because I was defending him. And they were saying, yeah, not really digging it. Um, and Tom set it up that way. Mm-hmm. So that you, we started to believe that anybody who didn't agree with what he was saying was weak doctrinally. Yes. You or, know what I mean? Or divisive. Or divisive. I, rem- or, I remember the message from Corinthians that love trusts all things yeah. and his... Believes the best is what he's... But love. That's how he, love he believes applies. The best love believes people. the best. And he used that as a way to get you to not question authority or leadership or trust, you know, that he was knew what he was doing. 
to twist the scriptures for his own gain. I was going to say what's interesting about that particular thing is that actually, in in my case, that actually backfired on him (laughs) because I loved the people I was living with. And so I believed the best about them as well (laughs) as about him. And so here I am trying to believe the best about both, about both parties. And that's where, that's where the confliction came. Jude, Jude tells us these people are discontent grumblers living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. That really describes PT quite well to a T. It really does. Everything we're talking about rests in Jude's description of the apostate or the uh, wolf in shepherd's clothing and factors into the slickness of words. You then remember Paul's call to the Ephesians to not be children in your thinking, so you will not be deceived. And that's where we were. We were young Christians, newer believers growing in the faith, and arrogant. I think all three of us would say that. I think that's totally fair. At least Mike. We'll go with that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All of us were. What's interesting about that is um, I was talking to Mike earlier on the phone, and I feel like he and I, early on, Mm -hmm. we were both pretty dogmatic. We were dogmatists. We were like, and we were harsh about it, where you've always been kind of, you come across as very chill. That's more personality, where I'm, I'm more passive- just by nature, yeah. like I'm like Rex from Toy Story, where I don't like confrontations, you know, and that's something I've had to work through. But because of that, I kind of take a backseat and observe more, but it, that's personality. You guys are a little more um, just willing to stand up and voice opinions more so than I am. I'm like, hey, let's just hang out. And that has both, both have advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember someone, I think it was the college pastor at the time, referring to us as the Sons of Thunder for a while. Now, now which, known as, uh, which we wore as a badge of honor, honor yes. Yeah. Yeah. And now I look back on it and go, yeah. yeah. Now you label Jesus it the sons was of chunder. not giving that as a, as a good title for, yeah, that wasn't <laughs> for a quali- James and John. That was no. not a quality moniker. <laughs> no, he was not. Yeah. So we, we have this deception. We have a man who's de- uh, overtly deceiving, fulfilling the prophecy of Jude, essentially, in the context here in Southern California for us. And it leads up to a church split. So we're going to get to that on another day. But what are some of the factors that you you both saw? And since I came in late to the game, we didn't know much about PT. We knew he was a master's guy. We knew he stood doctrinally. He taught like John MacArthur in some ways, which we wanted because we saw value in it. But we didn't know much more than that. And we saw people we loved. And we saw people who didn't like him. And his wife's lovely. His children are great. He's humble, quote unquote. So we just went with that. And after the split, my family left along with me for those reasons. But what are some things you saw building up to the split to Black Sunday, as we've called it? Not getting to Black Sunday, but what's some of the the pressure that built towards that? He started preaching about slander at one point. And he had switched away from... I remember it this way. I remember he was preaching about sovereignty, and then he suddenly switched and did this mini-series on slander. And the main thrust of it was, if you speak out against him, you're sinning against God. That was the take-home. Um, Don't touch the Lord's anointed kind of a thing? Yeah, he, he had this vision of the pastorate that put the pastor in this supreme leader category, aside, apart from all of the rest of the congregation. And he used certain passages to try to, like, 
push that. One of them was a verse, and I don't have the address on the tip of my tongue, but it's uh, it it speaks about it in Jude, and I think the other one's in Second Peter, possibly. But it says uh, that these people have no problem reviling angelic majesties, and he said angelic majesties referred to pastors and elders. So if That's you're exciting. reviling an angelic majesty, you are slandering a pastor. You are sinning against God, and basically he was just trying to shut everyone up who was worried about his demeanor and approach to everything. Uh, also, I remember there was a specific lady in the congregation who started having some meetings at her house about getting rid of Pastor Tom. And one of the tactics he used was to discredit her and make her out to be like a crazy cat lady who no one should even listen to or talk to. And if you paid attention to her, again, you're sinning against God because you're slandering the pastor and the pastor is the supreme leader and you are in violation of God's law and, you know, you're going to get zapped, basically, you know, you're going to get lightning strike or something. Yeah. And I think that like to kind of solidify what you're saying, I had heard those criticisms from the folks that I was living with and... Uh, and others, not just the ones that I was living with, the others who were concerned about the direction that uh, that Tom was going. But I didn't, I didn't quite buy that necessarily. I'm like, who would actually think that of themselves? <laughs> um, but two instances for me, he actually told me. I was sitting in his office, and he told me that it was impossible. When he was behind the pulpit, it was impossible for him to err. He's the Pope. He, it was impossible because he was then the mouthpiece of God. He's pontificating. He's pontificating. He's ex-cathedra. And, and when he said that, I went, whoa, right, in my head. And then the thing that, like, nailed the coffin uh, was actually after the split was complete um, a representative of the denomination that we belonged to helped um, mediate kind of that split, come up with a working, uh, workable agreement on what financial package and things like that that would, that would do that. And then after he did that, he said, I have never met anyone with such a Messiah complex in my life. Wow. And, and this I, is a guy who does this for a this living. This is a guy who does this for a living. And it's I impressive. Was like, Yes. That's impressive in like, a bad way. Oh, so all that was <laughs> was true. It was you true. Know. So we have a guy who's deceiving, who's preaching to protect himself in the pulpit. People are picking up on it now. And that's really what builds the pressure then is people are starting to figure out, okay, there's things that are jacked up here. I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they actually had to cancel his church card because he was racking up cash. So early on, he had... Um, submitted to redo his office. He wanted to, and to be fair, it was. It needed it. It needed, it could have used a fresh coat of paint, but it wasn't bad, right? But it could have used a fresh coat of paint. Um, and he wanted to do that. And so they had approved like paint and something else. Well, then he went out and bought paint and carpet and, you know, all this brand Book new shelves. bookshelves yeah. and, and, you know, hired a contractor to come in and there was a, there was a built-in bookcase and he wanted to close that off, you know, I mean, just like 
all this stuff. And all of a sudden they're like What's up? credit card bills. And so they, they shut off his, his card. And then in order to complete the project, uh, Pastor Tom went to the uh, little old lady's Sunday school class and petitioned for money. And they gave him cash to finish the yikes to finish the project. It was probably more than just the little old lady's Sunday school class, but he did. He started with the elderly. Um, wow! Worked his way through. Worked his way through. It's a classy yeah. move. <laughs> so just keep it. Classy. He keeps it classy. Keeps it classy. So yeah. we we've seen characteristics of a false teacher: the wolf in shepherd's clothing. They seek. In the deception, there's truth there, and hindsight shows that he was preaching truth. We've, we've all discovered, I think, in our own time and own way that it was a lot of plagiarism, and by a lot, I mean basically all the stuff that fed our souls was plagiarism because the truth was being preached from a plagiarized message, and the Spirit used that. When he went to his own wacky stuff of exegeting, quote-unquote, the text and applying it, it was nonsense in many ways. It creates confusion, creates delay, and creates that culmination. The mature real, realize it quicker. Yeah. The immature tend to be more deceived, and that's where we were. Yeah, I was going to say that, that for you know, from our perspective, it was hard to see the difference. Yes. Because he had established himself as this solid Bible teacher. and then Installed he began, by John. Installed by John and, and preaching these messages that I don't think anybody in the church necessarily at the beginning would have a... Would have a problem with, and then all of a sudden, when things take a turn, the more discerning and mature members of the congregation begin to see it, and uh, us and others are like, you know, we're relying on the equity that he's built, yeah, in the past. Going well, no, that's not who he is. So this, you must be wrong because this is what he is. The fruit of that is you either have a giant cult, or you have a church split. I mean, that's really the only two avenues that can go. Or, you, well, by ejecting him, you have a church split regardless because people will leave no matter what. People will be deceived. Un- unfortunately, if you don't, it's not a bad thing. It's just human nature doesn't really dictate that. Sin tends to prevent that where deception occurs and people leave regardless, even if you remove the cancer of the false shepherd. So anything to add before we end this episode? The ideas of the false shepherd getting in, maybe some encouragement, some warnings, uh, some synopsis of, of things maybe we hadn't been able to touch on uh, before we call it a close. I think that I want to be clear. Uh, I think we all want to be clear on this, but we want to be clear uh, that we have a deep love for Church A. Yeah, And that we, we understand the environment in which they were in at the time and how this happened. Um, A lot of respect and love for their current leadership Mm -hmm. over there. Uh, A lot of respect and love for the leadership that was there at the time, even. Mm -hmm. Um, And just understanding. So so if you find yourself in this situation, it's not always the church. It's not always the church's fault, right? Right. Uh, there's many factors that play into how we got to this point. Just wanting to to affirm our love and respect for Church A, um, even though none of us attend there now, but just love and respect for that for that church, and uh, and not we're not 
I, I don't blame them for any of what happened with Pastor Tom and the effects that he had on our lives. Yeah, I did earlier at first, yeah. but now that I've come out of all of it, I don't blame them one bit. Yeah, same for me. Yeah, uh, there was <laughs> there was much need to place the blame upon them because we were told to as a part of it. Yeah, later on, he literally said he wished the ground would open up in the middle of the sanctuary yeah. and swallow the whole church like fire come, like Poison. the sons of Korah. Yeah, yeah it's impressive. Yeah, I, he, he was so angry. Years later, I was like, I was puzzled by it, mm-hmm. but not anymore. <laughs> That's how it goes. And I'd say also for the ministry of MacArthur, we none of us would say it's a perfect ministry. But there we isn't hold, such thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But we, I would say we all hold the teachings of John to a, a high standard to where we are willing to interact with it and work with it, knowing that it's not the only truth out there, but there is a good source. Absolutely. And that a large um, place such as the Master Seminary, Grace Community Church, cannot keep everything pure and clean from seeping out. There's been many men from that seminary who have done the same thing, yeah. if not worse, and but every other seminary too. Yeah, that's the every thing. Is it's seminary. not limited to just them. It's not. And um, yeah, there's a there's a, a huge amount of respect for uh, Dr. MacArthur as a Bible teacher mm-hmm. and as an expositor of Scripture. I have a huge amount of respect uh, for his ministry, and he's t- they, that seminary has turned out many good. Yeah, pastors as well, and some of our friends. And so some of that, our good friends that are, we know. I have very good friends yeah. who, and I attend a master's Me church, too. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, also, you know, John was not complicit. No, in this, he was deceived he was as well. He was duped as well. Yeah. Yeah. So let's not get that twisted that he was somehow complicit yeah. in this. He he didn't know that this guy was the way he was because he. You know, this guy was slick, man. Yeah. Pastor yeah. Tom was slick. He was really good at playing the role when he needed to. Yeah. So um, I would also add, if you're seeing things like this and you're feeling like maybe you're in a context that's unhealthy, um, just keep your eyes open, keep praying, and trust the Holy Spirit to lead you. Don't let somebody dominate you and put themselves in a position where they are your supreme ruler as a pastor, because Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, call no man on earth your father, because you have one father who's in heaven, and call no man on earth your rabbi or teacher, because you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And this is, he's saying to the disciples and the entire crowd, not just the disciples, the direct disciples, but the whole crowd. So no one has the right to be your spiritual father or set themselves up as your teacher on earth in that way. That is anti-Christian, just to be clear. Well, this has been Rants and Revelations with Mike, Lance, and Steve, the the trifecta, unholy trinity. <laughs> well, maybe not the... Emphasis on unholy. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. get that straight. <laughs> you know who we are. We hope this has been edifying. We hope this has been educational in some ways. Um, As we say in our preface, this isn't the end all of everything. Our perspective, our journey in many ways, which we hope to share more of. So tune in next time for Rants and Revelations. Revelations.